0: This morning, in a sermon that is entitled, Compassion and Conviction, I want to start out by reading three texts from the English Standard Version, or the English Standard Translation, simply because of the way it's worded. First one is Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. Listen to this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, As far as the east is from the west, so far, does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Our God is the great God of compassion. The second text from the English Standard Version would be Isaiah chapter 49, verses 13 through 16, which says this. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What a beautiful text. We think of, for those that were in the adult class this morning and searching for that point to drive the nails through. God said way back in Isaiah 49 in verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Third text would be Isaiah 63, 7 through 9 from the English Standard Version. It says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Our God is the God of great compassion. And so it's no surprise when we get into the New Testament and we see Jesus, who was the exact representation of God's being, when we see Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, That we see according to James 5 and verse 11 that the Lord, that is Jesus, is very compassionate and merciful. Him being God in the flesh, God being all compassion, Jesus was as well. We, We read throughout the gospel accounts of how Jesus was moved with compassion or had compassion on so many. For example, He had compassion on the weary, the scattered, the sick, and the hungry, Matthew 9 and verse 36, Matthew 14, 14, Matthew 15, 32. He had compassion on the blind, the leprous, and those formerly demon-possessed, Matthew 20 and verse 34, Mark 1, 21 and 5, 19. Jesus, God in the flesh, had compassion on the vulnerable, the ignorant, those suffering seizures and convulsions, and those who had just lost loved ones. Mark 6, verse 34. Mark 9, verse 22. And Luke chapter 7 and verse 13. Bible's all about the compassion of Christ. Matter of fact, very familiar accounts. We may have passed right over that word, but for example, in, Mar- in uh, Luke chapter 15, and verse 20, Jesus used the word compassion in describing the Father's attitude toward his formerly prodigal but now returning son, when it says there in Luke 15, 20, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father, God, in that account had compassion. As we look at all of those examples wherein the word compassion occurs, it ought to be incredibly obvious to even the most casual observers that true biblical compassion Having true biblical compassion on somebody means a whole lot more than we sometimes, in our, in our limited human experience, give it credit for. It means a lot more than simply giving somebody a little money so they can have something to eat. Compassion, in the biblical sense, is so much more than that. In the fact that compassion in the Bible involves far more than we often give it credit for or put into practice can be seen from the very words from which it's translated for example according to strong's outline of biblical usage the old testament hebrew word for compassion which we already read in psalm 103 13 and isaiah 49 13 through 15 that word means to love to love deeply have mercy, be compassionate, have tender affection. There's a whole lot more there than than we sometimes give the word compassion credit for. We see the same thing in the New Testament. For example, Strong's also says of the New Testament word that Jesus often used for compassion. It means to be moved to one's innermost being, to feel sympathy, to have pity, to be moved with compassion. Compassion's a whole lot more than than seeing something and going, aw. Compassion is is being moved with a a love and an affection and a pity to, to, to do something. Our human conception of the word compassion as compared to what the Bible says about it would be sort of like standing at the ocean and watching a wave hit the shore and say, oh, that's the extent of the ocean. (laughs) There's a whole lot more water out there and there's a whole lot more stuff beneath the surface that God put there, where if we were to say that that one wave that crashed into the beach was the whole ocean, we wouldn't begin to understand the fullness of what God had created. And it's the same with the word compassion. For example, compassion. Compassion is the quality that lies at the very heart and soul and foundation of the forgiveness that is so essential to our eternal salvation compassion is the quality that lies at the very heart soul and foundation of the forgiveness which is so essential to our foundation uh, so essential to our salvation did you know that that forgiveness comes from compassion without that compassion it ain't forgiveness Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 in your Bibles, and I'll show you this. Again, a familiar account. I'll read it fairly quickly, but I want you to see that the forgiveness, which is so critical that is there for our eternal salvation, begins with compassion. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, master, have patience with me, and, and I'll pay you all. Then the master of that servant, here it comes, was moved with compassion. He didn't just have it. He was moved with it. Compassion moves you to do something. He was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him. Do you see how compassion is the very foundation of the forgiveness that is so critical? Moving on, verse 28, but the servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked Servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you also, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And, and there we see that, that compassion contains this idea of pity, pity that moves you to do something. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's critical. That's not optional. That's as essential as baptism is, brethren. He said must. And we had a sermon here not too long ago on on the meaning of the word must. And I'm not going to go back and reteach that. But this is a must, that we forgive our brother from the heart. Where does that begin? It begins with real, true compassion. We see this again in Colossians chapter 3. And again, I'm going to read from from the English Standard Version, or a quote that I got offline from the English Standard Version. Colossians 3, 12, and 13. Listen to what this says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Real compassion begins in the heart. That's why Matthew 18.35 says, So my Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Again, Colossians 3.12 and 13, English Standard Version. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And there's the word must right in the text. We must forgive one another as God forgave us. Where did God's forgiveness begin? God's forgiveness began in his compassionate heart, as we read about in Isaiah, as we read about back in those first three texts that I talked about at the beginning of the lesson. The reason God can forgive us, the reason God does forgive us, is because of his compassion. Compassion in the heart drives forgiveness as a fruit. We'd also know that biblical compassion does more than just mouth the words or write a check. Biblical compassion digs in and gets its hands dirty. Now, There's nothing wrong with writing a check. There's nothing wrong with helping somebody eat. Please don't go home and say, Doug says, we shouldn't help the hungry. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that biblical compassion, as, as God defines it and as we see it in the text, is more than just a quick gift of money so somebody can eat. There's, that's part of it, but there's, there's more to it than that. There's, there's a getting your hands dirty. There's an investment of your own time as well. It is a doing the dirty work necessary to correct the situation. That's part of biblical compassion. Note with me Luke chapter 10, where we would see this, beginning at verse 30. Again, another very familiar, familiar account. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 30. But compassion is, is just pasted all over these familiar accounts. Luke 10 and verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed him, departed, leaving him half dead. Remember the shape this guy's in. He's wounded, he's bleeding, bleeding all over the place. Okay? He's not a pretty sight. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And you can almost see him go, you know, ew, you know, not get my hands dirty. This guy's all bloody. What a mess. I I, I can't touch that. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side, walked way out around him. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Keeping in mind that compassion is something that you have in the heart that causes you to respond in a certain way. It causes you to put forth an effort. Look what happens. Because he had compassion, verse 33, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I'll repay you. We often get caught up in the money aspect here, and he he did. He took up his own money. But notice what he did before the money. Took this guy that was bloodied, took this guy that was a mess, and went over himself at the expense or the, the, the potential for getting blood on his own clothes and blood on his own hands, he went over and bandaged the man up. He got his hands dirty as well as helping with the money. And he did that in verse 34. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then picked him up and set him on his own animal. Why? Because he had real compassion in his heart. Verse 33. God's compassion for us was not limited to God sitting in heaven and saying, I feel so bad for you guys. Wow, must be tough being you. How did God show his compassion? Came down here and got his hands dirty adult class this morning. He did something about it because of the compassion in his heart. Do you know that biblical compassion is also defined by God as being willing to do whatever it takes to seek and to save the lost, Jude, verses 22 and 3? Now. The Bible notes in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, that we are to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. We are to bear the family resemblance. Eric did an excellent job last Sunday night talking about shining the light and being the light, reflecting that light of God to others. We are to bear the family resemblance. We are to look like Jesus as much as we can. We are to be transformed, the Bible says, into his image. In 1 John 4, 17, it also tells us that what gives us confidence on the Day of Judgment is that while we were in this world, we were like Jesus. Don't forget that. When our time comes, and we're getting close, what gives us confidence on the Day of Judgment, again, 1 John 4, 17, is that while we were here on this earth, we were like Jesus. And so in in all of those things, reflecting the light, family resemblance, while we're here, we're like him, all of those things say that we're to become like Jesus. And, And we've already noticed Jesus' compassion. And so the question this morning is, are we as compassionate a people as God our Father is a compassionate God? That's the question. Are we as a people truly as compassionate a people as God our Father is a compassionate God? Let me, let me ask the question a different way. Do other people see in us? Do other people see and recognize and experience the true compassion of God coming out of our lives? Are we, the compassionate people, that God in Colossians 3.12 demands his people must be in order to be bear the family resemblance and be recognized by both God and man as belonging to him. And again, I'm not just talking about giving some money here and there. Compassion is so much bigger than that. Well, let me ask this. What is our view of or our attitudes toward those who maybe struggle with things that we don't personally struggle with? What is our view of or attitude towards (coughs) others who are perhaps tempted by things that we are not as an individual tempted by? What is our view or attitude of or towards Those who may have come from a little bit different life circumstance that caused them to see things a little different than we do. What is our view or attitude of or towards those who may have been traumatized or wounded or burdened by things that we cannot begin to imagine because, thank God, we never were? What is our attitude toward those who meant really well, but fell and failed to do the things they wanted to do, the things they desired to do, the things they intended to do, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7? What is our view or attitude, Oliver, towards others who have suffered incredible hardships and losses? who have endured afflictions, who have endured addictions, that you and I have been blessed as individuals that we never had to suffer. One of the reasons I challenge us with these questions today is because of what the Bible repeatedly tells us about some of the most incredibly religious people on the planet who wound up with no compassion. Because of what the Bible tells us regarding some of the most highly religious people on the planet and how if we are not ever vigilant, we could become like them or a lot more like them than we'd ever want to think if we're not careful. For example, if I were to ask you who was one of the most religious, devout, uncompromising religious groups of people in the New Testament, who would you say? Probably the Pharisees. They are about as devout as it comes. They were about as dedicated and as pious and religious as it comes. Let me me give you a little background on the Pharisees. In case you didn't know where they came from, you don't see the Pharisees in the Old Testament. You won't find them there. You see, where the Pharisees actually came from is that intertestamental period of about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a certain group of very pious, well-meaning Jews who did not want Judaism taking off and following the culture of other, uh, other countries. Now, do we agree today that we in the churches of Christ want to just stick with the word and not see the church carried away with various and strange teachings? We don't get carried away with culture, right? See, in our beginning stages, as it were, it's a lot like theirs. The problem with them over the years is that they got so focused on, on so many just, 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 Black and white, they got so focused that they overlooked love and grace, mercy, and compassion. We must follow the word of God, period. End of discussion. Don't ever think that I have ever. We must follow God's word, to the latter. But if we don't have love, and mercy, and grace, and compassion in doing that, we're not following it. Because that's in there, too. I want to show you what I'm talking about here with with the Pharisees. Consider this. Turn to me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. When the Pharisees saw the common folks and the sinners and our good old boys just coming together with Jesus for a meal at Matthew's house in Matthew chapter 9, what did those highly religious people say? Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What did Jesus say? When he heard that, verse 12, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, that's a word very close to compassion, and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Repentance. And no love and mercy. They had no grace or compassion on the hurting. Jesus did. He said, you really need to learn about this. If you don't think biblically speaking, biblically speaking, that devoted, devout, highly religious people can, if they're not careful, become some of the most callous and careless and uncompassionate people on the planet, look in Mark 3. Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three. Jesus going to church. Now I realize church isn't established yet, but the illustration is there. Mark 3, 1, he entered the synagogue again. He entered Saturday on the Sabbath. He went into the synagogue. He went where all the religious people were assembled to learn and worship God. A man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They kept silent. When he looked around at them with anger, Jesus was angry at them. Why was Jesus angry at them? Because they were willing to keep the law? No, Jesus wasn't angry with anybody, never has been, that they were willing to keep the word of God. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they were willing to keep the word with no disregard whatsoever for love, mercy, grace, and compassion. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out. The hand was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out immediately, plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Oh, there's a good religious group for you. Let's kill him. He did something nice. See, they didn't understand the grace and mercy tied up in the law. What about about their compassion? And I use the word in quotes and italics. What about these highly religious people's compassion? for the woman who had the bad reputation in town in Luke chapter 7. You remember that story? You'll hear more about that tonight, I believe, if you're here. Hopefully you will be. What about their compassion for the woman caught in adultery who they threw on the ground in front of Jesus, wanting him to sentence her to being stoned to death? What about their compassion for her? John 4. What about this highly religious people's compassion for the boy who was born blind and his parents in John 9. W- what about their compassion for Mary and Martha when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? You say, Doug, wait a minute. Whoa, slow down, Doug. Maybe, okay, maybe using the Pharisees is a little bit over the top. Okay, maybe. I don't think so, but it might be. Perhaps you know, we'd feel better if we stopped for a minute to consider Jesus' first century disciples. Maybe, maybe we'd feel better to, to compare religious people today to the very apostles themselves. Those who spent three and a half years walking and talking and working with and learning from Christ Himself when it comes to being compassionate. We're more like them. Yeah, come on. I feel much better if, if I was compared to the apostles and the disciples than I would the Pharisees. I mean, come on. Who wouldn't be, right? So let's go that route. You remember how compassionate. And merciful his disciples were to one of only two people in the eti- entire gospel accounts who was said to have a great faith by Jesus in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Remember that woman? One of only two in the entire New Testament that Jesus commands for having a great faith. Remember how compassionate they were to her? In verse 23, they told the Lord, send her away, for she cries out after us. She was an embarrassment to them. Get rid of her, Lord. She's embarrassing us. That was the disciples? Yep. Do you remember how deeply compassionate and merciful James and John wanted to be to the Samaritan villagers in Luke chapter 9? You want us to call fire down from heaven? Take them out, Lord? How about the Apostles and disciples, great compassion for the little children in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 14, where their parents brought these little children to Jesus so he could bless and pray for them. You know what the disciples did to those people in their great compassion for them? They rebuked them. We read in Mark 10 and verse 14 that Jesus was greatly displeased with his own disciples' lack of compassion. But they didn't get at that time either. Do you remember how they treated blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10 and verse 46? They wanted him to shut up and be quiet. He was an embarrassment to them. We could talk about the woman at the well and their attitude toward her in John 4. This is the disciples of Christ. Or the woman who did this beautiful thing of anointing Jesus' feet, how indignant they were with her. Matthew 26, 7 and Mark 14, 3. point's made, as even the most devoutly convicted religious people can, if they're not careful, overlook or forget or or, or get to the point where they lose some of their compassion and and they can become hard-hearted. It can happen. It happened with Jesus' own disciples. How can that happen? How is that even possible that that could happen? How, how, How does it? Well, it's called a spiritual lack of balance, or slob for short, (laughs) S-L-O-B, slob, spiritual lack of balance. That was exactly what the Pharisees' problem was. In Matthew 23 and verse 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus did not condemn them for keeping the law. Jesus did not condemn them for for doing the right thing physically that they should have been doing. He did not condemn them for that. He said the problem is, is that when you do that exclusively and you've left love and justice and mercy and compassion out of your interpretation of the law, you've missed the whole thing. He said you ought to do both. You see compassion and conviction, grace and truth are linked together and inseparable. They have to be. For example, you'll recall when I began this lesson I read from Psalm 103 verses 8-13. through 13, Talked about love and compassion. Do you know that if you continue down just a little ways in Psalm 103, beyond verse 13, you get to verses 17 and 18. You know what it says? You better obey God's commandments. There's a balance. See the balance? Yes, you must have conviction. Yes, you must obey the word of God. That's Psalm 103, 17 and 18. You must keep the word. But Psalm 103, 8 through 13 says that in that word, there is love and compassion and mercy at the same time. You can't have one without the other. Look with me in the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. I I want you to notice specifically one verse that that ties this whole lesson together. John, chapter 1. I want you to just look at the very short verse here, fairly short, verse 17 for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ is belief and baptism both essential for salvation are belief and baptism are they both essential if a person who believes and isn't baptized can they be saved If a person's baptized but they don't believe, can they be saved? No, belief and baptism are essential. Brethren, compassion and conviction are essential. Or to put it as Jesus did, put it as the scripture does about Jesus, grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus did not just come and bring truth. He brought the truth. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we must worship in spirit and truth. We must live according to the truth. But that's only half of the equation. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Listen, there are religious groups out there today that are all grace and no truth. God loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven. No matter what they do, don't matter how they live, that is a false doctrine that's going to carry millions to hell. Grace alone don't get the job done. Okay? Grace without truth is pointless. But brethren, the point that Jesus stressed to the Pharisees and his own disciples is that truth without grace isn't going to get you too far either. Because grace is a part of truth. Truth is a part of grace. Grace and truth work together. Jesus came to bring grace and truth. The old law was all truth and no grace in the eyes of some. And by it, no no flesh would be justified in his sight. It takes a balance. That's why we need to be balance. I think the best way to illustrate this is, is Karen's coffee. <laughs> Believe it or not, Karen's co- I go to Karen's coffee a lot. But anyway, this one works really well. She drinks instant coffee. I'll just leave that at that. She drinks instant coffee. Let's say the coffee granules. Picture a jar of instant coffee. I don't care what your brand is, whatever one you like. you got these instant coffee granules. We'll say that the coffee granules are truth. You with me? And we'll say that water is grace. Now, the coffee granules alone, like all truth and no grace, would be pretty hard to swallow, wouldn't it? How many of you take instant coffee and chew it up for fun? Nobody? You wouldn't do that, would you? I don't know how many of you boil hot water and just drink it with nothing in it either. How many of you just boil hot water to drink? Really, what's the matter with you people? See, you don't just take one or the other, but if you put them together, they have a sweet-smelling aroma. They, they make a, a good and therapeutic mixture, one that is pleasant. Grace and truth work the same way. When, when mixed together, you get a warm and inviting mixture that is a lot easier to swallow. Listen, God's love for us is why we love him back, right? Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. God's compassion and grace and mercy is what draws us to him, right? His forgiveness for us. And that's all part of truth. You can't divorce that from truth. They're part of the same thing. If God's grace and God's mercy and God's love for us is what drew us to God then do we understand that God's love and God's grace and God's God's mercy are the same reason that other sin-ravaged and broken people are going to come to us? Do we understand that the love and grace and mercy of God that drew us to him in the first place is what is going to draw other broken, sin-ravaged people to us as his children and his church so that they can learn the rest of the truth and obey that truth, which is essential to save them. I'm going to tell you why it's so important to understand this. Several years ago at Affirming the Faith, I believe it was 2015, Brother Ralph Gilmore was there, and he preached a, a lesson entitled, God's Blueprint for Compassion. Give you a couple things he said. He said, Can you be sympathetic to single mothers? Sure, someone sinned. In fact, two of them sinned. And the truth is, what they did was wrong. Period. But, now that that's been done, can you have compassion? on someone who made a decision, sinful, yes, but a decision nonetheless, which you never did, or which you believe you never would have? What kind of welcome would those struggling to overcome drug, alcohol, or other substance abuse issues feel they received if they were to work to walk in and want to worship with and become a part of us. Now, again, I'm not talking about okaying sin. Sin is never okay. Sin is never okay. It just isn't. And I know sometimes we think that, that well, if we have a bunch of you know, folks that are drug addicts or this or that or one thing or another and, and they're worshiping with us, that the community is going to get the wrong idea that maybe we okay those sins. That was pretty much what the Pharisees had to say to Jesus, who was eating with tax collectors and sinners, wasn't it? He's eating with the reprobates. How can he do that? Doesn't he know who they are? Listen. If those who need help the most don't find it with us, where are they going to find it? If those that need God's grace and compassion because they've made such a mess of their lives through addiction or or immorality or any of those other things, if they can't get a hold of of God's truth through us because we've showed them the grace of God and the compassion of God and and we're willing to be merciful to them, a sinner, how how are they ever going to learn the truth and thus obey it? Then, Brother Gilmore... And I had a whole list of his credentials. He was credentialed to death. Okay, He's done a bunch of stuff. Years in the ministry, traveling, all kinds of stuff. Okay, And I'm not going to share them all with you. But just understand, this is a man who knows of whence he speaks. He dropped this bombshell. And I, I, I don't believe that it's true in every instance. And I'm not saying that I do. But it's probably true in more cases than we'd like to admit. He dropped this bombshell. If we cannot show more of the compassion that is asked of us by the Lord, our young people will find other sources of it. Because they had rather go to a church that is benevolent and has a piano than one that sings a cappella but is cold and uncompassionate. They had rather go to a church that is jumping for Jesus than one where they think people are just going through the motions and do not care about them and their struggles. Now, while I understand that a lot of young people in this church And I'm talking about this church, the Lord's church. I understand that there are many young people or good programs, but it's the leaders, there's tri-state. I understand that a lot of our young people know the truth and they would never go off in that direction. I understand that. But at the same time, he's got a good point. Because there are some in the churches of Christ nationwide, kids that are struggling with things that people my age cannot begin to comprehend. And if we cannot get into their lives, and understand, and seek to be compassionate when they mess up, and be like Jesus, they may seek that compassion in a place that doesn't teach the truth. That was Ralph Gilmore's point. And so I ask us this morning, if, if grace and truth both came through Jesus, and they did, John 1 in verse 17, why should anyone have to make a choice between getting the truth from us or getting grace and compassion from a denomination? Shouldn't people always be able to get both of those things? Jesus brought grace and truth. His church is built upon grace and truth. They, they were baptized that day in Acts 2. They received the grace of God, and they continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in the truth. Grace and truth are as inseparable as as, as instant coffee and hot water once they're put together. They're, they're both essential, and, and they're both necessary. So shouldn't people always be able to get both of those essential elements, which Jesus came with and died to provide to everybody? Shouldn't they be able to get them from Jesus' church, which he established on both of those? And I'm not saying he doesn't. It's just so many people over the years have gotten so caught up in either all grace, which won't get them to heaven without the truth, or they've gotten caught up in all truth, and they're cold. We can't afford to veer off on either side of the road, is all I'm saying. Does that makes sense to everybody? <coughs> we need to make sure, because sometimes they started out well-intentioned people as well. But Satan can pull you off the one side or the other in an overemphasis, and, and we don't want to become all grace and no truth and and all go to hell and enjoy the ride. But, But we don't want to become so caught up in just truth with no grace that we become cold and harsh and pharisaistic. Besides, they weren't all truth because grace is a part of truth. And so the question this morning is, are we a compassionate people as defined by God, the word compassionate? Are we truly a truly compassionate people, according to the unchanging definition of the Almighty God? More importantly, I think, than that even, is do others recognize us for that? If if somebody said, well, you're a member of the Church of Christ, you're part of that group that fill in the blank, would one of their words be, is so compassionate? Do people see that compassion in us? Both grace and truth, compassion and conviction, are vital, but they need to be balanced. Grace without truth, or compassion without conviction, is a pointless product of man-made doctrines. While truth without grace really isn't the truth at all, because the truth is full of grace, It's just cold, hard Phariseeism. May we always seek to be the grace and truth children of the living God who are constantly aware of Satan's schemes to make us all into slobs. That is, spiritual lack of balance, sinners. People may come into our church building who don't look like us saw somebody the other day in a store that waited on us. Believe me, they didn't look like us. Between the nose rings and the tats and the rainbow belt and the name change and, and then it only got worse from there. But you know what? That person needs the grace of God. If they don't find it with us, they ain't gonna find it. They need the truth of God too but we need to make sure we don't cover up compassion with condemning truth, but that we show compassion so that they might want to come and learn the actual truth. Let's make sure that we are a people of compassion and conviction. We are people who obey the word, but love like Jesus, for our God is a compassionate God. This morning, if you're not a member of that family, then I urge you, if you understand that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, I urge you to be willing to confess him before men, to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then to live faithfully. If you would need that option this morning or the prayers of the church, we are a very compassionate group. We will love you, we will pray for you, we will help in any way we can with the truth of the word of God as we stand in sight